0: Welcome to Voting While Black podcast. I'm Rashad Robinson from Voting While Black, the nation's largest Black-led, volunteer-driven voter mobilization program, a project of Color of Change PAC. In this podcast series, we're talking with the candidates running for president in 2020, getting real about what they think about race and exactly how they would make lasting change in this country when it comes to fighting racism and ensuring racial equity. Rather than just talking policy, we're here to talk power. How will the candidates help make the movement for racial justice in America even more powerful? Will they stand up for our issues during this election and most importantly, when they get into office? As a leader in the movement for racial justice, I often say there is a big difference between presence and power. What I mean is issues that Black people care about can be talked about everywhere online, on the front pages, and even on the debate stage. But that doesn't mean anything is going to change. The mere presence of our issues is not enough. We have to actually gain the power to make change. Almost every candidate has a platform on race, the policies they say they will implement. But we've heard a lot of that before. This podcast asks the candidates about what it takes to make those promises real and make justice real. My very first guest is Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Senator Sanders also ran for president in 2016. Both then and now, he has successfully popularized big ideas like Medicare for all and canceling college debt and making college free for everyone in addition to building a historic following of small-dollar donors powering his campaign. And this was one of the most illuminating conversations I've had with the senator. I asked him about his commitment and approach to racial justice, past and present, and how he would stay true to being a champion of progressive issues if elected. We sat down together in Washington, D.C. Well, welcome, Senator Sanders. Thank you uh, for joining us. I'm so glad that you're here with us to talk about racial justice. Almost every candidate, I should say, including yourself, has a platform on race um, and the policies that they want to implement. But rather than talking about actual specific details of policy, which is really important, we want to talk today about power and how You're going to be part of building the power we need to actually make those policies, those promises a reality, to make what we say, to make racial justice real um, and to move this country forward in the right direction. I really do want to start off sort of with the first question is, uh, what specific systemic change are you most proud of being part of, whether it's working to win or actually winning? What are the changes in terms of racial justice um, at the systemic level that you feel most passionate about and have been part of?
1: Well, you know, you're taking me back a few years. Yeah. Uh, When I was a kid uh, at the University of Chicago, uh, I participated uh, and helped lead uh, one of the first uh, sit-ins uh, in the North, in that case, to the University of Chicago, in opposition to segregated housing. And I got arrested, I guess I was 20, 21 years of age, uh, in opposition to segregated schools. So I go way back yeah. on this issue. And, uh, you know, over the years, we've had some change. Not enough. Uh, but I would say that my commitment to racial justice... It goes way back a few years.
0: Absolutely. And so, you know, as you think about that moment and you think about the forces that were sort of standing mm-hmm. um, in the way of that opposition, yep. there's was so there been so much change in terms of policies, uh, written rules from the time to the 60s. And I'd love if you could share a little bit about uh, the opposition, the forces that were standing in the way, and and how the work that you did and the work that you were part of work to
1: overcome? Well, in, in this particular case yes. in Chicago, you had the University of Chicago, which was and is one of the great universities mm-hmm. in the country. Uh, it wanted to maintain a more or less segregated community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I did, never forget it, never forget it. Uh, we worked with a group called CORE. You familiar with CORE? Of course, yeah. All right, yes, all right. Of course. You know, they've not been around for years. Yeah. Guy named James Flom. I heard it. Up. Yes. And what we did, I remember it like it was yesterday. We had uh, a black couple go in uh, to a university-owned uh, housing and uh, asked for, you know, uh, what's available. They wanted to rent an apartment, and they were told, "Well, we're really sorry. There's just nothing available." An hour later, we sent in a white couple, and amazingly enough, there was a choice of nice apartments that of were course. available. All right. So what we did is we highlighted that we put the university uh, very much on the defensive and, you know, it's been a few years, but I think out of that came a process by which uh, the university was going to end their segregated housing.
0: Yeah. When we um, talk about racial justice um, at Color of Change, we oftentimes say that people don't experience issues, they experience life. That the forces that hold people back are interrelated. That a racist criminal justice system requires a media culture. Right? Political inequality goes hand in hand with economic inequality. They all work together. As you think about the kind of fronts that we are facing today, what are the two or three sort of biggest fronts in terms of facing down um, the issues that hold black folks back, hold people of color back in this country?
1: Well, I think you got to, you know, almost start off with education. Mm -hmm. And as you indicated, everything is related to everything else. So, for example, uh, some months ago, I talked to a group of students in my office from Howard University, and they told me something which I should have known and I did not know. And they said, one woman said, you know, when my mom goes to the doctor, she feels a little bit uncomfortable. It's a white doctor, and uh, she has the feeling that the doctor is not necessarily believing her. Mm-hmm. And, and I've since talked to a lot of African Americans who relay the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, what does that mean? It means you need, as we fight for Medicare for all to guarantee healthcare to every man, woman, and child in this country, it also means that we need to educate more and graduate more black doctors, more black nurses, more black social workers. Mm -hmm. And we have introduced a proposal called the Thurgood Marshall Educational Proposal, which puts a triples funding for Title I schools, moves us so that no teacher in America will be making less than $60,000 a year. So we're focusing on making sure that all kids get the education they need to get a higher education, and that trickles down, impacts... uh, Uh, medical care, and other things. So I would say that we've got to focus on education. My plan would make public colleges and universities tuition-free. And by the way, I want to say with a little bit of pride, we've come a long way in the last four years. You may have read New Mexico yesterday Mm -hmm. announced free tuition at their public colleges and universities. They are the 12th state to move in that direction. Uh, Cornell University Medical School, free tuition at the medical school. That idea is gaining... uh, is having an impact. So it impacts everybody in America. It will impact the African-American community even more because African-American kids are leaving school more in debt, having more trouble paying off that debt, which is why I want to cancel all student debt in this country.
0: Yeah. I mean, talking about debt, uh, talking about um, sort of the whether it's the cost of education, you talked about hospitals and health care. And I want to shift to something that we think about as sort of a undergird of many of these problems and that's the consolidated power that corporations have built in our country. Thank you. Um, uh, At Color of Change we believe that you just can't change the rules of government but we have to change the rules that corporations have in this country as well and that has to be part of racial justice work because the incentive structures um, that are um, have been set up for corporations impact every single sector of our society. They do. They
1: impact Healthcare in terms of a system which is completely dysfunctional with 89 million people uninsured impacts the African-American community even more. The idea that we have three times more maternal deaths at childbirth Mm -hmm. for black women is, you know, unspeakable. Mm -hmm. Uh, It impacts real estate in the fact that redlining still exists. You want your kid to go to a good school? Well, you may not be able to buy a house in the kind of neighborhood you want. Uh, it impacts education, as we mentioned. Uh, certainly impacts criminal justice, my God. Yeah. Uh, you know, we the studies, as I, I understand them, have blacks and whites uh, doing marijuana at about the same level. Uh, African Americans are, I think, six times more likely to be arrested uh, than whites. That's unacceptable. So you see the intersectionality of, of all of this stuff.
0: Yeah, and so since we're talking not just about the what, right, but the how. Talk to us about how you are and how you will uh, work with movements. You know, a lot of times, and we've had experience when progressives get into office, they think, and this has not been your history, but when progressives get into office, they um, work to kind of toe the middle line um, to and and
1: not always work with movements or try to become the leader
0: of our okay. movement.
1: Let me answer two questions. Yeah. You gave me two questions. Yep. Let me answer them both. Mm-hmm. First of all, you talked about corporate consolidation. Yeah. Let me spend a minute on this, because I'm the only candidate who will tell you this. What you're looking at is not only the greed of corporate America in a nation where income and wealth inequality has grown exponentially. You've got Mm -hmm. three people owning more wealth than the bottom half of America. That is disgraceful. But what you're also talking about is corruption in the part of the corporate elite. Mm -hmm. You have... You know, the fossil fuel industry destroying our planet, knowingly doing that, and they know exactly what they're doing. The drug companies selling products out there that they know are addictive, they're now, you know, being sued by attorneys general all over this country. Price fixing, massive price fixing in the pharmaceutical industry. You got a healthcare industry which will spend hundreds of millions of dollars out of the 100 billion they made last year in order to prevent us from moving to Medicare for All. They're gonna lose, but they're gonna spend unlimited amounts of money. So what you got is corruption on the part of corporate America. You got a handful of executives who have unbelievable power. Six banks on Wall Street own 50% of, the equivalent of 50% of the assets of the entire GDP. Six banks. You got the Blackstone Group, now one of the, a major landlord in America, private equity company. So we have got to take on There's greed and this corruption. And to answer your second question, the only way I know how to do that, the only way that has ever worked, is when millions of people stand together and come up and say, you know what, enough is enough. That is the history of the labor movement, the women's movement, the civil rights movement, the gay movement, the environmental movement. So what I have said a million times is that And the reason that the message of our campaign is us, not me, is I'm not here to tell you, hey, vote for me and I'm going to do it all. I can't. Mm -hmm. No president can. No one's honest with you. And you know why? It's the point you made. Mm -hmm. The power of this corporate consolidation. You think a president of the United States sits down with the heads of Wall Street and say, hey, guys, be nice. Mm -hmm. Stop stealing from the American people. Hey, you're not being moral. Mm -hmm. That's not the way it works. The only way it works is when millions of people stand up. And that is why what we are doing is obviously trying to win this election, but we're trying to build an unprecedented grassroots movement uh, to do that. Yeah. So in terms of righting the wrongs, what do you think...
0: Uh, corporations owe, to ensure that corporations are playing not just their fair share as we start a new race, but dealing with um, all the harm that um, have been dictated by Wall Street, by healthcare industries, by so many that have exploited uh, black people in black communities.
1: Let me give you an example. Well, two, two examples, if I may, that come off the top of my head. You go to Nevada today, I was just in Las Vegas, you drive down their main roads, And you know what you see? You see these huge billboards and it said marijuana for sale coming to. Yeah. All right. And you're thinking that in states all over this country, there are people in jail right now. Yes. Mm -hmm. For doing exactly what these corporations are doing. And one of the points, I think, apropos of what you just said, is that if the African-American community has been devastated by the so-called war on drugs, you know what? They deserve to get some of the profits out of this changing Environment mm-hmm. right now. So we cannot simply have corporate America controlling the legalization and the sale of marijuana. Mm-hmm. We got to make sure that the African-American community who has suffered so much mm-hmm. gets uh, a fair share uh, of that as well. You talk about housing. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. You have the crooks on Wall Street uh, destroying our economy. Uh, and as a result of their greed and recklessness way back in and illegal behavior back in 2008, millions of people lost their homes. Disproportionately, Latino, African American. Uh, And we have got to uh, address that right now. (laughs) Unbelievable. I don't know if you know this, I just learned more about it the other day. Blackstone is a major private equity firm. Mm -hmm. They are now one of the major owners of uh, single family rental units in America. What they did you, destroy, you drive people out of their homes, right? Yep. The homes are in floor closure. You buy them up on the cheap, and then you charge very high rents, and you drive working people who live in that community out. They can't even rent. Mm-hmm. That is how disgusting this whole process is and what the greed of Wall Street and other corporate entities are, are about. How do you,
0: as a person, as a candidate that's going to work with movements, how are you going to work to keep people motivated through through the, all of the information, all the channels that people will get that will push folks the other way, that will tell people that these changes that you're advocating for are not possible or they're not winning, that America is not ready. Um, whether it's corporate media that is incentivized to tell us a certain story or whether it's the Democratic Party infrastructure or whoever else, or it may just be what people believe from the conversations they're having in their own communities.
1: Um, a month or so ago, I was in Iowa, and somebody gave my grandson, who's eight years old, gave him a little sign to hold up. And the sign said, I'm paraphrasing and I think, was a quote from Nelson Mandela. And what it said is something like, it is always impossible until it happens. Mm. It is always impossible until it happens. That's, I think I'm paraphrasing him. And what that means is the great struggle that we face is not just taking on Wall Street or the drug companies or the insurance companies or the fossil fuel industry. The more important struggle that we face is what you told what you just said, is making people believe. Making people believe that change is possible. Now, I live 50 miles away from Canada. Okay? Somehow or another in Canada, they have a situation and in, in a health care program that if you have a major heart transplant in Canada. You spend the month in the hospital, do you know what your bill is when you come out? Zero, zero. You go to any doctor you want. The cost of prescription drugs are a fraction of what they are in the United States. How come we can't do it? It's impossible. The United States can't do it. Really? Every other major country on earth has done it. As I mentioned earlier, we're making progress in making public colleges and universities tuition free. Germany has been doing that for years. Scandinavia has been doing that for years. So the struggle that we face it's not just taking on Wall Street and the other big money interest. Is making people believe that real change is possible, even when that change already exists in countries all over the world. All right? You live in Norway. You have a baby. All right? You get something like 10 months off at full pay. The American people can't even believe that. They can't even imagine that. Right now, women are forced to go back to work a week or two after giving birth because we are the only major country that doesn't have paid medical and family leave. So the struggle that we face, and the media is a lot to do with that, is to making people understand that as human beings, they are entitled to certain inherent rights. You're entitled to the right of healthcare. You're entitled to decent housing. You're entitled to education. You're entitled to a decent job. Mm -hmm. And that's the struggle that we are waging. And when we win that struggle, the other stuff falls into place.
0: So one of our members sent in a question about um, Vermont. Um, it's actually a state that I've spent some time in, beautiful state,
1: but it's a very white state.
0: Um, and, less, um, less, so than it, yes.
1: less so than it used to be. Yes, yeah, but that. it's
0: still the second, I think. It's the second whitest state and probably yeah. one of the least diverse states um, in the country yes. with, you know, 95% yes, a 95% pop- white right. yeah, population right. of like 630,000 people. Yep. And that, you know, you've represented that state in various uh, positions um, in Congress and Senate for a long time. And so really... Talk to us about um, sort of that representing that constituency and what it would mean, right, to transfer, to represent in a country that is uh, much more diverse, um, that looks much different, and resolving and dealing with and engaging in tensions that look quite different.
1: Well, I I think your point is well taken. You know, Vermont does not look like America. And my campaign staff does not look like necessarily my Vermont staff.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, And let me just say this. Uh, I will have a cabinet and an administration that looks like America. Mm-hmm. It, will be, it will reflect America. That means African-Americans, that means Latinos, they mean Native Americans, Asian-Americans. We're gonna get the best people we can, obviously. And an administration that will reflect uh, who the American people are in our proud diversity. Uh, and equally important, the people we are gonna be hiring are not just gonna be people of color, they're going to be strong proponents for the needs of the working class in this country black and latino and white and we're going to have the best people that we can who are prepared to stand up to the greed of corporate america and represent workers
0: so I, I really um, appreciate that uh, point. My uh, good friend, Dorian Warren, always says that we don't need a rainbow oligarchy. Um, and so to the extent that what it means uh, to have uh, diversity in places means that we also have a real intent about what we're trying to achieve collectively. Yeah, exactly. um, so much about the campaign, so much about this election is candidates coming to communities um, sort of with a pitch around what they're going to do for black communities or talking about sort of the harms that are currently in black communities. It's it's part of the campaign. Folks come in there, you know, talking about what are we going to do to fix um, challenges. I also like to be aspirational because I think it's important that we talk about the contributions that black people, black organizations, black culture has made um, in America. And so I'd love and I know the folks listening would love to hear from you about you know, a black person, a black public figure, black folks in your life that influence you today, something about um, where we need to head in this country today. And you know, I'd like to end with that.
1: Well, let me just say in, in, in two ways, it, it, two figures come to mind. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, was a major, major inspiration uh, in my life and on the views that I hold. I know I date myself a little bit (laughs) by saying that I was there in Washington for his, uh, you know, for the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Uh, And, uh, you know, I'm fairly familiar with what he tried to do in his life. And he has inspired me. There's another person who I think people have heard of but don't know the political work that he has done. That is Harry Belafonte. Uh, Everybody knows Harry Belafonte to be a great entertainer and a great singer people don't know, not only that he was at King's side, Dr. King's side, but he was involved in labor struggles for years, in social justice struggles. So those are two people, uh, you know, that in, in Belafonte I've had the opportunity to get to meet uh, who have had an impact on me.
0: Senator Sanders, uh, thank you. And also thank you for sharing that uh, Nelson Mandela quote. I, that, quote. I believe that I believe that movements do make the impossible happen and when when he said that the idea of that it's not possible until you know i just i think that that's so and let me just
1: say you know i know all of the great challenges that we face but just yes. think about it marijuana if you and i were here four yes. years ago and i said you know what i think in countries in states all over the country marijuana would be legalized you would have yes. said bernie you're crazy yeah public colleges and university. Raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. These are ideas I talked about four years ago. Yeah. And everybody said I was crazy. These yes. are too far-fetched. They're happening now. But obviously, yes. we need a president, hopefully me, yes. who's going to push that agenda.
0: And we need to be able to work work with movements. At Color of Change, we oftentimes talk about um, so many of these problems facing black people. Um, is Black people are not the problem, but we are the solution. And in so many ways, good. I want to thank you for sitting with us today. And uh, good luck on the trail. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Sanders, for joining us and thanks to you for listening to the Voting While Black podcast. Before you go, text, tweet, and email this episode to your friends. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Voting While Black podcast so you don't miss next week's episode featuring former San Antonio Mayor and HUD Secretary Julian Castro. Voting While Black is a national voter mobilization project based in Black joy and building Black power. We will kick off hundreds of brunches and other events in 2020 to bring Black folks and our allies together to get informed about the election. Sign up and be the first to hear about the Voting While Black tour at votingwhileblack.com. Thank you to everyone who helped make this show possible, including our own Whitney Bugs, Tanika Boyd, Valerie Brown, Jennifer Edwards, Kwesi Chapin, DeVorne Hermiku, Vanessa Ross, Drew Daniels, and Alexis Grishaber. Additional thanks to Ryan Sensor. This show was produced by Color of Change Pack in partnership with Shara Morris from Neon Hum Media. I'm Rashad Robinson. See you next week.